0: Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy. I'm Megan. And you're you, and you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories, our season finale.
1: Woohoo! Season one! Finale! I might cry,
0: Megan. I might cry. Hold on, <laughs> let me try to work up some tears. I'm just kidding. So, if you don't know who we are, uh, we are two people who went to Carnegie Mellon together, we were friends, we decided to move out to LA, and now we're doing this show, and you're here with us.
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, Jeremy and I love reading sh- and writing short stories, and we really wanted to create a place where we could share um, both our own short stories and other people's short stories and hopefully uh, gain a few uh, bring a, bring a few people over to the short story dark side and fall in love with them uh, as much as we are and um we want to give a special shout out to everybody staying safe wearing your masks social distancing uh, thank you for your effort to keep yourselves and your family safe and also everybody else we really appreciate it
0: yes And also, if we have any listeners that are writers themselves, go to our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com, look through our FAQs, and then submit because you might be on the show. We're looking for new voices. We love diversity. We love all genres. P.S., if you have a romance piece, we have not done one of those. And Megan and I are dying for one of those.
1: Oh, my gosh. I want, like, a bodice ripper, like, so badly on this show. So please send them my way.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. We might have to have like a trigger warning. My heart swooned too much. Oh,
1: yeah, well, much. the first
0: time. <laughs> also, make sure so, to like and subscribe us before it gets too interesting because we are a hoot, right, Megan?
1: That's right. That's, I think it already got too interesting for people. So bringing, bringing everybody back. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if one of this. The short stories this season was really compelling to you, and you really liked it. Please uh, like that episode and please leave us a, a note. Both Jeremy and I, and all of our writers, really love hearing from our fans. Of uh, what no writer, there's no writer out there who doesn't like hearing from like positive, you know, from their fans. So please, please send us some love. Uh, we do this show live on YouTube every Monday, but uh, we are also found on spotify and stitcher and itunes apple podcasts so if you want to listen to us you can download the podcast onto your phone and listen to it wherever you go
0: and if you're social media fans we're also on facebook instagram and youtube our uh hashtag is nrss wait yeah nrss podcast on twitter if you want to shout us out and one last thing. This is our favorite thing to do is plug ourselves. Why are we doing that, Megan? I don't know why we do that.
1: I, I don't know. Why Why are we plugging ourselves on Two our Two writers show? trying to plug who? their own work. I don't get uh, it.
0: For me, my website is com, And if you subscribe, you get a micro story of 100 words or less delivered straight to your email. I love sending those out. They're all genres. I have fun with it.
1: Yeah, they're a lot of fun. I highly recommend subscribing. And if you go to my website, meganamorrison.com and subscribe to notifications, anytime I post any update about any project I'm working on, you will get a notification about that.
0: Okay, so this is actually the best part of the show, besides the reading of the short story, of course. Uh, Cranky Time is our time not only just to talk and gab and have it like under three minutes, before we get in trouble by this guy, this alarm clock. Megan, <laughs> do you wanna talk about the alarm clock really fast?
1: Yeah, for those of you who are listening, um, Cranky is a large old timer um, who's black and has uh, glow-in-the-dark white numbers in a circle around on him. And we set this timer so that Jeremy and I don't gab on for too long, which we are known to do
0: under normal circumstances. Also, it's super fun because like at the end, Megan always like freaks out. We're going to have a compilation of Megan freaking out eventually.
1: I feel like in season two, you should have Cranky and you should be the one that jumps every time he I don't he think off. so.
0: <laughs> I-, I feel like this might be the first time we've had an artistic difference on the show, Megan. I think we should I, keep well, things the way so. they are.
1: <laughs> we'll ask our timekeeper yes. and see what he Crank- has to
0: say about
1: Cranky. It. Yes. Are we ready? All right, so this week I just finished this wonderful book called Nosferatu by Joe Hill. If you aren't familiar with Joe Hill, he is the author of novels such as Horns and Lock and Key and um, is the son of Stephen King. But I feel like he has um, artistic merit of his own right and uh, continuously puts out these really wonderful stories and Nosferatu is um this wonderful novel it's a it's a big guy it's like over 750 pages but it's well worth it it's a it's the story of this young girl who gets tangled up with this um maniacal man named Charlie Manx who wants to steal little children and take them to a place called Christmasland and uh it's it's heartbreaking and it's heartfelt And it's imaginative, and it's horrific, and it's terrifying, all wrapped into one. Um, Two things that I really love about it is that the main character, Vic McQueen, is this 100% badass, but she's also very complex, and she has a lot of heart, and she has a lot of love, and she shows a lot of emotion. Sometimes I get annoyed with uh, strong female characters that are written especially by men, that um they're just badass and they have no heart and so they just feel like kind of robots but i think joe hill does a wonderful job with the main character in nosferatu and giving her a full spectrum of emotions as well as being like really tough and capable
0: and so so is it it does it have like any vampire moments in it am i just like
1: so it's uh it's kind of it's it's uh, kind of vampire adjacent, in that uh, the main the main bad guy Charlie makes uh, sucks the life out of the children, Whoa. and that's where he gets his like his uh, his power from and his his immortality. So it, he doesn't actually suck their blood as as a normal vampire, but um, he he does take from those that are living, so to speak. And he has this uh, this. I don't want to say magical, but this, like, special car that he drives in and the car is part of his ability to be able to take the life from these children. That's creepy. Yeah, it's it's really, I mean, after you read it, you will never think of Christmas or hear Christmas music and, and feel the same about it. Uh, I I heard a Christmas song the other day, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. This is creeping me out a little bit. <laughs> But it has a lot of heart to it. I mean, even though it is built in this in this very like terrifying world it is very um, It is the story of a mother searching for her son and trying to get her son back at the very at the very heart of it And it's very compelling. is it a horror? Yes, it's a horror But it just has a lot of heart
0: a horror with heart
1: Wow, I talked
0: about it. That was hilarious. That wasn't your best scare. <laughs> all right, so now we're going on with the show. So, this is not our first time with this author. Uh, this is Megan's piece, Megan Morrison, the lady right here. Um, this piece is very different from her prior piece, In the Blood. Um, let me find the synopsis. Okay, are you ready? This is how different this piece is. When aliens invade the world via household scent dispensers, a young advertising executive searches for the lost love of his life. It's not a heartwarming story, let me tell you. Megan?
1: Plug-in by Megan Morrison. An unidentified flying object the size of a 747 sliced through cornfields in Wisconsin last night, slinging scorched farm equipment and sizzling corn stalks across 50 miles of prairie. Maureen holds up her phone so I can see the pictures of the wreckage as I usher her into my luxurious apartment. My hand on the small of her back, my fingertips tingling with the my tingling fingertips detecting the bridge of lacy thong beneath her silky black dress. Gary, listen to this, she says to me, a little breathless, once we're inside and I dim the recessed lighting. This is exactly what I was talking about at dinner. A 747, I ask. Interesting. I push one button on the screen in the wall and fill the room with the smooth voice of Marvin Gaye. Maureen's dark eyes glow a metallic white in the light of her phone as she devours the article. She is crazy about conspiracies. So am I. I am conspiring right now to get Maureen out of her little black dress. Not a 747, something the size of a 747, she says. They don't say what it actually is. Don't they not? How do they not know what it is? Don't you think that's weird, Gary? Gary? What I find weird is that Marine seems impervious to my seduction. Marvin's voice is flowerless chocolate tort. My mouth is watering listening to him and Marine only has eyes for what's inside her phone. I regroup while pouring the Malbec from a decanter. I paid a guy $50 to come to my apartment a half hour ago and oxygenate the wine. I embrace a challenge. Marine doesn't make it easy, she makes it worth it. Very weird, I echo, handing her a glass. She glances up at me through her dark lashes as she takes the wine. I shiver in her gaze. Maureen and I work together at Advertisers Anonymous, a large advertising firm in the city. And by work together, I mean we are a symbiotic duo that, in any meeting or presentation, finishes each other's sentences with little to no preparation. People gawk at us in action and then applaud when we are done. Our synergy is electric. We're the team with all the little inside jokes that make everyone else in the room uncomfortable. Read, jealous. Maureen and I love the power of advertising. We are gods, really, manipulators of reality, exploiting consumer fears and stoking their insecurities. We provide them with a version of their lives they weren't sure existed until we show it to them in our campaigns. In our version of life, the one thing they need to feel confident and successful is this thing we want them to buy. It's quite perfect, really. We plant the craving in their brains and then reinforce it across all the surfaces their eyes already land on every day. Billboards, TV screens, online articles and videos, and of course, social media. Advertising is not about selling a product. It's about selling a new reality and completely erasing the old one. I'd never met a woman before who got it, but Maureen gets it. She gets me. Her first day on the job, she slinked right past my colleagues, Hunter and Lennon, their sleeve tattoos peeking out from their corduroy blazers, and headed straight to me, Gary, who prefers a tailored suit and inkless yet tastefully toned biceps. She knows success when she sees it, me, and goes after what she wants. Just like me, me and Marine, Marine and me. I've been preparing for this night for a while, ever since we were both assigned to the Delight Bread account. It was a huge assignment for both of us. Delight Bread, there's nothing more right than Delight, has been a staple in households for over 60 years. The honest traditional brand has been maintained through decades of diet fads and AMA recommendations. Delight Bread even survived the inverse of the food pyramid and the vilification of white bread. My mother always said the only thing white bread is good for is keeping the mayonnaise off your fingers. I've taken pride in proving her wrong. The other things white bread is good for is making lots and lots of money, catapulting my career, and most importantly, leading me to Marine. Before working for Advertisers Anonymous, Marine worked in kids' snack packs, and I came to the company having just completed a campaign for individually packaged apple slices. We were like two comets barreling toward each other in space. I shudder, thinking how she could have paired up with Linen. Lennon, who plays acoustic guitar once a week at a regular open mic night and brews his own beer. There's no way to spin that story into anything but lame. What if there is a spike in Delight Bread's price? Maureen asked, finally lifting her head up from her phone and the article about the cornfields, her, her brow furrowing. Although somewhat annoying in my present situation, her dedication to our work is intoxicating. I only had one drink with dinner, but I am intoxicated. Intoxicated by Marine. Delight Bread is doing fantastic, I say. It has our brilliant minds on the job. But Delight Bread is 67% high fructose corn syrup, Marine says, her voice full of panic. She suddenly tenses. If this much of the corn crop has been damaged and the price goes up, sales will go down. Marty will take us off the account. I look at the wax dripping off the candles. Marvin sings the last verse of Midnight Lady. If he goes into sexual healing before we are making out, it will kill the mood altogether. Sexual healing is not a lead-in song. It's the soundtrack to the main event. I take Marine's now trembling hand in mine. I can't go back to snack packs, Gary, she says, pouting and causing my heart to swoon. I think, I know you don't agree, but I think household products is the next step. Anything else is regression. Household products. Ugh the bane of my existence. Stinky, smelly, nasally-acoustic household products marketed to disillusioned parents juggling a full-time job and full-time kids. People who believe as long as their house is clean and smells like unidentifiable artificial scents, their lives aren't miserable and unsatisfying. The household products division is where synergy, strategy, and imagination go to die. I don't want Marie anywhere near household products. I would never see her if she went there. We'd grow distant. Our psychic connection would dim. Unacceptable. Marine downs her glass of wine and turns a stricken face to me. I can't go back to my old job, Gary. There's nothing sexy about snack packs. Don't be vexed, I say, in a croon, melodic with Marvin. You aren't going anywhere. Lennon said something to me today, she says, casually. Lennon. I scowl on the inside. Oh, yeah, I say on the outside hoping the cringe in my voice isn't too apparent. He said, Marty is looking for someone to head up the scent simulation division of household scent simulation. There's no hiding the disgust now. I take a sip of wine to steady myself. Maureen, Jewel, you wouldn't sell yourself so short. But if the cornfields scent simulation is a dead end, you might as well start doing campaigns for diapers. Maureen cuts her eyes at me, and for a moment, I think I might have gone too far. Lennon, insufferable hipster that he is, is right. Marty is looking for someone to head up the scent simulation division of household products. In fact, Lennon came to me just this afternoon and asked me if I wanted on the campaign for the new scents, Fresh Beauty Breeze and Seashell Garden. He forced me to listen to his research. How many households have artificial scent dispensers already? How regularly they replace them? Which scents men like versus women? It was like nails on a chalkboard. He also gave me a huge bag of samples. I gagged just thinking about them. My office will probably smell like a gas station bathroom come Monday. I am firmly rooted in the food products division within the company. It's one step closer to a sports drink and then a celebrity endorsement campaign. Eventually I'll make them big move to PR and brand management and completely rewrite the present. The household products division is a backtrack. I won't make that move, not even for Marine. On my couch, Marine sighs and her initial worry flows out of her. She listens to the music as though for the first time. Marvin Gaye? Marine's eyes twinkle, teasing. She sits up and leans toward me. A little obvious, don't you think, Gary? I reach out, feeling bold, and playfully caress a dress strap off one shoulder. There's no shame if it works, I say. It's something the two of us say together. One of our many private jokes. She laughs. I kiss her and a giant wave of fire walks through me. But instead of dying, I am reborn. I am a man whom Marine would let kiss, and I am worthy of this privilege. And if I am a man who is worthy, then I am a man who is capable, intelligent, confident, because Marine would not tolerate less. I am more. I am the most anyone has ever been. I move my kisses to her neck, my tongue tingling from the sweet sod of her skin. She smells like heaven, soft and comforting and primal. I am in a fog, the fog of marine. I will the fog to never lift. Now, though, the fog is slightly warm. I feel a little warm. I think my tongue is burning, stinging and burning. Against my will, I pull back, repressing a gag that comes out as a cough. Marine tenses. Are you okay, Gary? She asks. The burning goes down my throat. I cough and cough and cough again. There is a nuisance in my mouth, thick and artificial. Sometimes I have sensitivities to fragrances. A co-worker's perfume might trigger migraine, but it's usually the cheap stuff that I react to, not the high-end, complex, and delicate fragrance Marine wears. I've seen the bottle, and it's endorsed by a very well-known and powerful actress. Marine hands me the glass of wine. Before I take a sip, I match the taste in my mouth to a cloying vanilla scent wafting off Marine. Vanilla? Really, Marine? It must be her lotion. It's her lotion. That's all. It's just her lotion that I'm having an intense, allergic reaction to. It's okay. My tongue might be swelling, but it's okay. Marvin's aphrodisiac voice circles around us. Sexual healing. It feels like glass in my ears. Marine is at least three feet from me. In a desperate act that feels ugly, I reach for her. Come here, I say. But it comes out as a jarble of, um, Eh. She sympathetically puts a hand on my shoulder. Oh, no, Gary, she says. Your face. I bring my hands to my cheeks, and sure enough, the allergic reaction is intensifying. I touch the pulsing skin around my eyes, stretched over the flowing fluid underneath. I realize I'm squinting at the exact moment Marine's phone buzzes. She quickly silences it, but not before I catch a glimpse of Linen's corduroy jacket on the collar ID. Then my angry, swollen eyelids slide over my eyeballs, taunt like the appendages of balloon animals, and plunge my sight into darkness. My stomach lurches. I bite my engorged tongue to keep from screaming. You have to go to the hospital, Marine says in a voice dripping with concern. I allow her to put my jacket on and lead me out the door. We go down the elevator. The movement is unsettling, but Marine takes my hand. The, the night might not be turning out the way I had imagined, but at least I still have Maureen's undivided, undivided attention. In the cab, we rock back and forth in the dark as we move through the city. I focus on the noises, the clangs, bang-bangs, the guttural voices rising up then dying out. The smell of sweat ingrained in the upholstery of the cab seat reminds me of the smell of the elementary school bus I moved closer to Marine. As a kid, I always sat in the front of the school bus alone in the row behind the driver. I ignored the dangerous adolescent chaos behind me, and it ignored me most of the time. I pretended the haggard, gray-blonde woman laboriously turning the big wheel was my personal driver, driving me to my French tutor or one-on-one tennis lessons at the country club. Even now, I'll tell people I took tennis lessons as a child, and I can feel the fuzzy yellow outside of a tennis ball in the palm of my hand. Or when someone mentions visiting the city of Montreal or Nice, I'll chuckle self-deprecatingly because it really is sad that I've lost my French. I don't accept any other narratives about my upbringing, just as I refuse to accept any other narratives about tonight, other than the one about me and Marine in a sweaty, satisfied heap of poised, spentness in my bed. This allergic reaction is only a small setback. The cab stops and I get out, and I hold Marine's hand tighter as other hands touch me, and I hear Marine explain to the medical staff what happened and how I need immediate attention. And then I feel her fingers spread wide to release me, but I keep my fingers gripped tightly. These people are going to take care of you, Gary. To the darkness and the unseen others, I plead in a voice like underwater because my tongue is so swollen. Oh, translation, Marine. I hear a buzz and clicks and taps and I know she's doing something with her phone. You'll be fine, Gary. These people are going to help you feel better, she says. The unseen others are leading me away, but I still hold tight to Maureen's hand. I can't let her leave. Leave me to go see Lennon? I hear her phone buzz again. I plant my heels into the concrete, but the medical staff is strong, and they hold me as I reach out into the darkness for Maureen. Oh, ee! Oh, oh, oh! Maureen, no, don't go! Lennon must have called her, texted her, told her about the scent simulation opportunity, the new samples told her she could have first dibs. I bet he even told her about the cornfield incident, stoking her fears of a spike in high fruit toast corn syrup prices. He whispered in her ear, like the serpent in the garden, to eat from the fruit of household products before it was too late. He's a liar, a liar, I scream, but it only comes out as, ah, ah. It's okay, Gary, Maureen says, it's okay. Someone sticks me with something. Oh God, my face. It feels like a rotting tomato ready to burst. Oh, eh, oh, eh, Maureen, Maureen. I squeeze Maureen's hand until the darkness behind my eyes becomes as black as the misery in my heart. I don't know I passed out until I awake. I'm in a hospital room on a higher up floor. There's indirect sunlight coming through the windows. The last time I was awake, recognizing light was not something I could do. I'm not swollen anymore. Although somewhat clammy, the texture of my face feels normal and elastic. I feel a brief moment of relief, but then the memory of last night sweeps over me, marine. Though the allergic reaction has subsided, the residue of her is still on my tongue, salty and musty like treasure tucked away in an attic. I have to find her and redeem myself. My teeth are unusually fuzzy for one night in the hospital, and I long for a toothbrush. As I get out of bed, my knees buckle, and I fall to the cool floor. On my hands and knees, I realize the floor is disgusting. A layer of dirt covers the entire room. It's really quiet. Not just in my room, but all around. No doctor's pages blare over the speakers. No nurses swing into the room to take my vitals. No moans or sobs. Something is off. I find my legs and shuffle toward the bathroom. There is nothing in it except for my clothes, which I put on. No toothbrush, no toothpaste, no toilet paper. In the mirror, I fa- my face is a skeleton. It's as though the reaction I had to Marine's lotion has been completely reversed. Instead of swollen eyes, my sockets are sunken like potholes. The cheekbones I've always longed for protrude from my face. Something is so very wrong here. Dreadnoughts in my stomach. This is the way an apocalyptic TV show begins, or a movie based on a horror novel. I'd roll my eyes at the cliché of it all if it wasn't so real. I open the door of the hospital room and look both ways down the dark, deserted hallway. In a plastic sleeve outside the door, I find my chart. Date of entrance to the hospital is 7-7, July 7th. There's a bunch of gibberish doctor's handwriting. I can't make out any of it. But what causes me to throw the chart across the hall like it's a cobra is not the doctor's illegible diagnosis, but the numbers scribbled alongside it. 7-8, seven, seven, 7 10 seven, seven, etc. All the way up to 8-8, eight, eight, August 8th. I've been in the hospital for at least a month. I peek back into the empty hospital room. There's a vase of dead flowers beside the bed that I didn't notice before. The card reads, wish you a speedy recovery. Hope to see you in the office again soon. Linen. Ugh, nothing for Marine. She feels so far from me at this moment. I conjure her, or at least attempt to, but our psychic connection is quiet. I smack my mouth to revive her scent, but even that is gone. I'm contemplating crawling back into the hospital bed when I see a fast food drink cup sitting on the nightstand. I pick it up, and yes, there is Marine's lipstick. A beautiful shade of crimson against the white plastic of the straw. My heart races. I must find Marine. I hear someone outside in the hall, so I walk back out of the room. It's a nurse in scrubs and booties carrying a long black stick in her hand. When she sees me, she stops. I can barely see her face in the shadow of the hallway. It's now that I realize there is no electricity. The nurse tentatively resumes her walk toward me. She holds out the stick, and I hear the buzz coming from the end. It's a taser. She's walking toward me with a taser. Wait, no, stop, I say, backing up. At the sound of my voice, the nurse halts. She's an older woman with thin strands of wrinkles threading through the soft skin of her face like a 200 count top sheet. Although her look is impassive, I know she's scrutinizing me. Please, can you tell me what's going on? I ask, clang, clang, clang. Loud metal against metal suddenly begins grinding from somewhere nearby to nearby. They've moved all the feverish to the second floor. The nurse shines a flashlight in my face. Recite your ABCs, she demands. Excuse me? Do it, she says without raising her voice. Marine says do it to me sometimes in a voice somewhat solicitous. There is nothing solicitous in this woman's voice. If I don't comply, she will kill me. Now that she is close, I see a revolver tucked into the waistband of her pants. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. She loses interest around LMNOP. There's another metal clash, and she dismisses me, continuing down the hall, slowly and on guard, her taser held high. When you go outside, use this, she says, and tosses a large black rubber gas mask back at me. There's a bonfire tonight in the square. You don't want to breathe the smoke. I don't know what any of this means, but I think better of calling after her. I hurry down the hall in the other direction and find the stairwell and jump the steps three and four at a time. My legs buckle in the beginning, but I adapt. Then I hear other noises, layered under the metal grating sound is a vibration radiating from the walls and mixed with the weird slippery sound like marbles in water. I am unnerved, so I pick up my pace, avoiding the trash thrown in the stairwell, IV stands, clothes, paper-thin masks, and vinyl gloves in colors clear blue and purple. On the next landing, I noticed the second floor plaque beside the door leading into the hospital. They moved all the feverish to the second floor. That's what the taser lady had said. The noise amplifies as I move hesitantly toward the door. It's like rocks and saliva and teeth grinding against each other. The closer I get to the door, the more the sound multiplies like a living organism exponentially until I can feel it crawling on me. Bang! Something slams against the door and I run. This isn't real life. In real life, nurses don't carry guns and there aren't feverish on the second floor and Marine isn't out of reach. I come to the street level door, put on the rubber gas mask the nurse gave me and push. The door jams and I have to slam my body against it several times. Finally, it opens, but the latch doesn't go back in, leaving the door slightly ajar. Outside the hospital, the sunlight is so bright it impales me. After being in the dim hospital for so long, everything I look at assaults my eyes. In between the buildings, which lord over me like giant blocks rising out of the street, the sky pulses a hyper blue. The cars in the littered street jump out at me. Candy red, neon green, electric silver. The gas mask doesn't help. I have no peripheral vision. My only line of sight is through the two eye holes, creating a limited tunnel vision. It's disorienting like being in a first-person video game, walking through a cave and anxiously anticipating whatever grotesque enemy will appear. I lean against the outside wall of the hospital and take deep breaths, conjuring Marine face, grounding myself in her beauty. When I open my eyes again, I'm staring up at a giant billboard advertising none other than Delight Bread. It's a nice, wholesome campaign, a lot of comforting blues and greens in a nature scene of a family camping beside a lake. Everyone smiling in their puppy jackets. When Lennon first saw the mock up for the campaign, with the handsome dad in a red shirt stirring the pot on the fire, and pleasant mom and two kids helping out, he'd scoffed. Look like any family you know in real life? Lennon asked me, cynicism dripping in his voice. Yes, I told him, puffing out my chest. My family. Lennon stared at me for a long time, so long it made me uncomfortable. Really? He asked finally. This was your childhood? Lucky you. I once had a memory of a childhood full of empty cabinets, but now those cabinets are full of delight bread. Yes, I had answered. Lucky me. My rubber gas mask is getting hot and foggy and digs painfully into my face. I'm about to pull it off when I see a body, or at least the shadow of one, floating in front of my tunnel vision. But it's not floating at all. It's a person walking down the street then another, and another, then a crowd hustles by in silence without so much as a glance toward me. They step in line beside and behind one another. Everyone's clothes are dirty and ragged, their hair matted under their heavy gas masks. Now that my eyes have adjusted to the light, I realize it's not afternoon at all, but dusk. The sun sets and the colors ricochet off the windows of the tall city buildings in brilliant oranges and reds and yellows. I fall in with the crowd and follow everyone through a large city park wondering where we are going and I see it a bonfire or what will be a bonfire once it is lit it must be at least 15 feet tall and only getting taller everyone around me has a bag and they empty the contents onto the fire stand a woman about 30 has two bags and when she turns them upside down small colored packets and vials fall out I recognize them as the packets and vials used in household scent dispensers They look exactly like the samples Lennon gave me. There must be thousands of them. What could possibly be the point of burning all those scent packets? I shouldn't have come here. This feels dangerous, and I have to find Marine. More and more people join the crowd, packing the park. I wiggle through the bodies, but I am the only one moving away from the bonfire pit. Hey! A man to my left grabs my arm. Where are you going? He stares at me through his gas mask. The words are jarbled, but I can still make them out. There are dark sunspots on his wrinkled forearms. He holds up his bag and repeats, Where's your offering? His fingers dig into my arm, yanking me close. We are now nose to nose like rubber insects. You a sympathizer? The man growls at me. I don't know what a sympathizer is, but I know I don't want to be one. No, I say, I just, I already put my offering in the pit. I can't tell if he believes me, but he drops my arm. Sneaky alien bastards, he says, putting their evil into the scent things. I bet those damn things are in one in every ten households. When Lennon had offered me the spot on the scent simulation team, he'd given me the research and I'd read it because I'm a curious person and it's best to know what your enemies are up to. Before I think better of it, I say, one in four. Scent dispensers are in one in four households. You got a problem? The man bows up to me. No, I say backing up and looking around for help, no one else pays any attention. They stare straight ahead. At, <clears throat> they stare straight ahead at the center of the park where people are still throwing their offerings into the pit. He grabs me by the throat this time. You better watch yourself, Mr. 1 and 4. His threats are muffled echoes in the chamber of his mask. Let me hear your ABCs. I stumble through my recitation, and the man doesn't let go of my throat until I'm all the way at sea. Then he falls back into the crowd. I'm more confused than ever. What is happening? The energy of the crowd is electric, almost surging, pulsing. The day is spent, and the shadows on the street grow longer and darker. In the dying light, it's harder to distinguish each person individually. They blend together like ants on an anthill, becoming one ominous shuffling blob. I have to get out of here. I push against the crowd but they are unrelenting. I am the salmon trying to jump upstream and they are the powerful waters barreling down upon me. I'm swept up and pushed back toward the fire pit by their sheer momentum. Then a man dressed like a park ranger walks out in front of the bonfire pit with a torch. My heart surges a bit. Finally, someone with authority and pleasant authority at that. Who doesn't love a park ranger? The man tips up the brim of his tan hat so everyone can see his reassuring face. He's not wearing a mask. Thank you all for gathering here tonight and bringing your contributions. We've now been fighting the aliens for over 60 days. Every day we learn more about them and get closer to finding their weaknesses. You all know how insidious and ghastly they are, how they've taken something we once found innocuous and comforting, nice smells in our homes, and now use them as vehicles to spread their disease. I know you are tired and you just want things to go back to normal. But the only way we can return to our peaceful existence is to continue the work we've been doing, continue with the offerings, gathering the scent packets by any means necessary, even if it is unpleasant. With each bonfire and with each each cleansing, which will happen again tonight at the hospital, we are one step closer to reclaiming our country and our planet for mankind. Before the crowd's roar can amplify, another voice drives through the air. Murderers! Loud and angry, it rings out from the back of the crowd. Hundreds of gas-masked rubber heads turn in the same direction. A woman runs toward the park ranger. When she is right in front of him, she opens her palm to reveal a scent vial. She pulls her arm back to throw it into the park ranger's face. But before she can do so, five people from the crowd tackle the woman and pull her off into one of the dark alleys. It's not the aliens, she screams. You are the murderers. You are. Her voice is extinguished. The crowd murmurs from the interruption, but silence is when the park ranger raises his hand. Do not feel sadness for that woman. Do not be fooled by how human she seems. She is infected with the alien disease. And in order to save ourselves and others from a similar fate, we must continue our vigilance. The ranger puts on his gas mask and lights the torch. To preserving peace and harmony! The park ranger levels his torch and sets the pile on fire. It catches fairly quickly and everyone in the crowd cheers and stomps their feet. The sound reverberates off the buildings surrounding the park like an avalanche. The light of the flames bounce off the eye holes of the gas mask. The five people who tackled the woman come out of the valley, but the woman herself does not. It's okay. It's okay. There is still order. That woman wanted disorder, and the crowd and park ranger stopped her. That's a good thing, right? Now I'm shaking. I'm shaking, and I'm going to suffocate in my gas mask. Marine, I must find Marine. The crowd starts to disperse. I look around. Marine could be anywhere in the sea of masks, but something tells me she's not. Above us, the models in the Delight Bread ad continue to smile in the firelight. There's only one other place I can think to go. The floor-to-ceiling windows on the ground floor of Advertisers Anonymous are completely smashed in when I arrive. I don't even have to walk through the door. The guard's desk is empty. I take the stairs up to the eighth floor. I saw the woman being dragged away. I heard the words aliens and murderers. What happened to the world while I was asleep in the hospital? What happened to Marie? When I swing the door to the eighth floor wide, I see only a dark row of cubicles. I go immediately to Marine's office. Marine is a workaholic, just like me. The office is where she feels most like herself. I know this is where she'll be because it's the place I would be if our roles were reversed. As I step through the door of her office, my heart flutters and I am disappointed to find it empty. Everything is as it was. Her favorite campaigns on the wall, her mini fridge, her delicate teacup. She doesn't drink coffee. I brush my fingertips across the lip of the cup. Oh, Maureen. Gary? The voice behind me is shaky and full of disbelief. I spin around to find Lennon, or at least I think it's Lennon. A body wearing Lennon's blazer is standing before me wearing a motorcycle helmet and holding up a crowbar. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I start the repetition slowly, but Lennon cuts me off. Stop it with the ABCs, he says. That's just arbitrary nonsense. He slips off the helmet and confirms he is indeed himself. He seems relieved to see me. No, more than relieved. Gary, he croaks. He lowers his crowbar and tears well in his eyes. For a moment, I believe he will hug me. It's okay if you want to take off your mask, he says. It's safe in here. All the scent packets were destroyed. I take my mask off. The cool air on my skin feels glorious. Where's Marine? I ask. Maureen, Lennon asks. How can you think of Marine in a time like this? Now is the only time to think of Marine. Now, and later, and forever. Where is she? I ask. I had an allergic reaction. I was in the hospital. I don't know what's going on. I tried to get you out of the hospital, Gary, Lennon says. I tried, but it all happened so fast. One day we came to visit you. The next, there were armed guards surrounding the whole building. Lennon gasped, tears streaming down his face. Linen, I say. I just came from a bonfire. They were talking about an alien invasion. It was the scent dispensers. You were right, Gary. Household products will be the end of us all. The aliens poison the scents. Anyone who smells them becomes infected, and once you're infected you become changed. Lennon's voice cracks again, and he looks like he's going to dissolve. Where's Marine, Lennon? I ask firmly. They took her. They took them all to the hospital with all the other infected. It was already in the samples we got from the new scents. We were going to start on the new campaigns. I got here late. Marty, Hunter, Marine. They'd already smelled them. It was so awful, Gary. Their eyes dilated and their faces became red and feverish and they convulsed in strange jerks. Then then they, oh God. linen! I say. linen. it's all right. Lennon takes a deep breath and calms himself. I look around for something to use as a weapon, just in case. Then the authorities came and rounded them all up and quarantined them, Lennon continues. I hid in the supply closet and have been hiding out here ever since. Anyone they think has been infected gets taken to the hospital. What happens to them at the hospital, I ask. They are cleansed, Lennon croaks. What does that mean, I ask. They kill them, he says, and my stomach lurches. No, I scream. It's the only way, says Lennon. To stop the spread of the disease, it's the only way. Otherwise, Gary, the aliens are too strong. They know our weakness. No, I scream again. Not my beautiful, lovely Marine. She's not dead. She can't be dead. I must get to the hospital. I'll need something to help me get past the guards. There's only one thing I can think of. I push Lennon away, away from me and run down the hall to my office. I can feel him following me. What are you going to do, Gary? I'm going to save Marine. I say, pushing through the door to my office and going to my desk drawer. It's an old-fashioned mahogany wood roll-top desk. You can't, Lennon says. I take a small key from the main top drawer and stick it in the secret keyhole under the desk. The lock switches smoothly and the right-hand bottom drawer pops open. Don't you get it? It's too dangerous. Maureen, is not worth you risking your life? My head pops up and my eyes narrow into hateful slits, shooting daggers into linen. He must feel it because he immediately shuts up. Yes, she is, I say evenly. Maureen isn't a nice person, Gary. She's a monster. Maureen is not a monster, I say. A woman like that doesn't team up with a guy like you because she's nice, says Lennon. I pull out the plastic bag from the drawer and set it on the desk. You're only jealous, I say, peeking into the bag. It's full of scent packets and vials, the samples Lennon gave me the day he asked me to join the account. Jealous that she was using you to get the best accounts? She didn't use me! I'm screaming now. We are the best team this agency has ever had! I put my gas mask back on and head for the door. Lennon cuts me off and grabs my arm. I try to wrench free it from his grasp, but he's surprisingly strong. Don't be a fool, Gary. You want to commit suicide, I won't stop you. But don't do it because you think you're saving someone sweet and kind. She talks shit about you all the time. Shut up, I say. No, Lennon says. You have to listen, Gary. You have to hear the truth. No, I scream and reach into the scent, the bag of scent packets. Take one out and shove it into Lennon's face. He gasps, inhaling the scent. I watch his eyes dilate. Gary, Lennon says, what have you done to me? Oh, God, I say, holding the bag to my chest. No! Lennon's voice is an explosion, deep and guttural, and he begins shaking and twitching. With an angry grunt of my own, I ram my shoulder into Lennon's chest, knocking him off guard and giving me enough time to run out of the office. I sprint down the dark hallway toward the stairwell. Again, I take the stairs, three and four at a time. Again, down one flight, then another. I hear nothing but my shoes pounding the steps. Then I hear a small voice echo down to me from above. Gary, calls Lennon. Is he infected? Is he completely changed now? I look up the stairwell, but I can't make him out. I continue my leaps down the stairs. I don't really want to see what he's turned into. I don't want to see what makes those awful sounds I heard in the hospital. But the next words that float down to me are so unexpected that I miss the last step and tumble into the wall, coming to a complete stop. Gary, I love you. Never have more sincere words ever been spoken. If anyone knows the truth when he hears it, it's a man in advertising. Gary, I love you. I've loved you since the first moment I saw you. His sincerity bounces all around me in grotesque echoes. The yearning in his voice is unbearable. I love you, Gary. I love you. Plugins must be like a love potion. Had Lennon fed Maureen the samples until the police came and took her to the hospital? That's why he'd said all those nasty things about her, to cover his tracks. How long had he abused his power? What had he made Maureen do? Thought makes my eyes boil. I want to confront Lennon, confront his disgusting affirmations, and hack him up with his own crowbar. But what good would that do, Maureen? I hold the bag of scent packets tighter to my chest as Lennon's nauseating, I love yous. Continue to fall around me, I exit the stairwell. The bonfire in the park is nothing but a smoldering ash pile as I pass. There is a sliver of a moon, but it lights up the city as though it were full and round, casting a glimmering gray pallor on the empty streets. The camping family on the billboard looks almost sickly, but still smiling, still enjoying their bonding day at the lake. As I walk the dark streets, I realize I have no idea what the aliens look like. Do they look like aliens in movies or comic books? Will they be horrifying and sophisticated? And how do I defend myself? I also find myself wondering what their alien takeover strategy is. Aliens infiltrate planet Earth through scent dispensers that make people fall in love? A little bit of a letdown as far as alien invasions go, if you ask me. Lennon said that Maureen and the others reacted to the scents, but he didn't say exactly what they turned into. The scents must eventually turn people into light alien forms. It's surreal to even be thinking this. Surreal, but also essential if I'm to succeed at finding and saving Marine. Back at the hospital, I count 25 heavily armed soldiers all decked out in black, including gas masks. The only people around who don't carry semi-automatic weapons are medical personnel who carry the long taser sticks like the nurse I encountered after I first woke up. Large black military vehicles roll in and out of a checkpoint gate near the entrance. A loud horn blares and everyone heads to the front of the hospital. I he- I head for the back entrance where I left the door slightly ajar. There's no one around and I easily slip back into the building. The door slams behind me and I plummet into darkness. Up the stairs again. Pre this nightmare, I was running five miles a day and alternating legs and arm days. So I'm not completely out of shape, even with the month or two in the hospital bed. But I am exhausted. My brain and legs feel like mush. I miss elevators, I miss lattes, I miss Maureen. I've always wanted her, pined for her, obsessed over her. Nothing is important but her. I do not believe all the things Lennon said about Maureen using me. It just doesn't fit into the reality of our relationship. At the second floor doorway, the gravelly sound is as loud as it was when I first came through earlier in the day. I turn the door handle carefully and tiptoe into the noise. As I approach what looks like a nurse's station, I notice a large metal grate has been welded over half the room, partitioning it in half. The noise comes from behind the grate. I can tell things are moving behind there, but I can't make them out. What sort of inhuman alien mutation is in there? Beyond the grate, I can make out floor-to-ceiling metal cages smashed against each other. The cages are small with moving walls that grind and rotate around the sides. I realize this is the source of the metal clanking sound, the gears bending and turning in perpetuity. People stand in the cages. They look like myself and any other human, except for one thing. Everyone in the cages wears a hard metal mask over their mouths from under the nose to their chins. They can't talk, but it's clear they want to. The cages are alive with hand gestures, nudges, taps on the metal plate of their own mask and the metal plate of their companion's mask and a strange sort of Morse code. I'm confused by the cage people's non-threatening demeanor. I thought Lennon said they were infected. What had the guy at the bonfire said? They were burning the scent packets to return peace and harmony. The people in the cages rub each other's shoulders and lean on each other to sleep. Maybe this group of people hasn't turned yet. This can't be the worst of it. I search the crowd, but I don't see Marine. She's here. She's alive. She has to be. I reach into my brain to try to revive our connection. I will it. Come to me, Marine. Come to me. I'm here. I'm here for you. I scan the cages, desperate, feverish. I wonder how long I can walk around here undetected. What will the guards do when they find me? What if I don't find Marine? My heart will explode in my chest any second now. And then I see her, Marine. There she is, at the far end of one of the cages. She's looking right at me. Although tattered, she's wearing the same black dress she wore when we went to dinner, the same black dress I slipped off her shoulder. When we went back to my place, when we were together a million and a half years ago. I want her to signal that everything is okay between us, that Lennon got it all wrong, that she loves me and wants to be with me. I wish she didn't have that metal mask on. I want her to smile at me. A group of armed guards suddenly come down the hall and I duck around the abandoned nurse's desk out of sight. Okay, let's take another group downstairs. One of the men goes to punch a code into the security door on the grate. The cage walls stop moving and grinding, and the guards surround the perimeter of the room. They then herd the humans out of their cages and through the great door to form a line in the hallway. I brace for a revolt, but everyone is docile and does what they're told. I look around the nurse's desk for something to use to my advantage. There's nothing but old office supplies and discarded vinyl gloves. I hear the guards finishing up their work, getting everyone... Without the incessant grinding of the metal walls... I can tell the slippery saliva-sucking sound I'd noticed earlier is coming from the humans constantly sucking on something behind the metal mask. What are they sucking on? And then I see it, back in the corner of the desk, a discarded metal mask. Only it's not just a mask, it's also a ball gag. The smooth metal plate on the front of the mask faces outward, but in order to put it on, you must insert a large metal ball into your mouth, which is attached to the metal plate by a short chain. I hold the torturous contraption in my hand and think strategy. If I put it on, I can blend in with the others and hopefully get close enough to Marine to snatch her. But that would mean putting this ball in my mouth and I don't know where it's been. My mind searches for other options. I could use the scent packets, spray them in the faces of the guards, create a distraction and run from Marine to the stairwell. Would we even make it to the stairwell? There's at least 10 guards and they all wear gas masks anyway. How can I even be sure the scent packets will affect them before they riddle us with bullets? I pick up the metal ball gag and steal myself. The ball itself isn't smooth. It's covered in sharp edges. I take off my gas mask and then stick the dirty ball gag in my mouth and secure the metal mask with the flip of the latch. Immediately, panic seizes me. There's no room in my tongue, for my tongue in my mouth now, and the little ridges on the metal ball Dig into everything, the roof of my mouth, my cheeks, my tongue, and grinds against my teeth. My mouth fills with saliva. Plus, the metal plate covering my mouth is tight and sharp and digs into my face. I already know it will bleed, and soon. The metal mask contraption is weighted, and my head feels heavier than the rest of my body. And now I'm fighting gravity just to stay upright. It would feel so nice to lie down on the floor. The muscles in my neck tighten. This is worse than when I had the allergic reaction and my tongue swelled. At least then I didn't feel like I was drowning in my own spit. All right, I hear one of the guards say, let's move him out. I spot Marine behind a young man, and as we wait in the line, heads down to avoid eye contact with the guards, she reaches up to put her hand on his shoulder and gently pat him in comfort. Who is this guy? Was he in the cage with her? Did they bond to each other over their present trauma? Is that why our psychic connection is broken, because of this guy? Someone in the back of the line trips and falls forward, and all the guards point their large guns at the commotion. The distraction is my opening, and I jump into the line behind Marine. She doesn't turn around right away, and I stare at her beautiful hair. It's matted and grimy, but I don't see it only as it was the last time I saw her on my couch. The shades of her subtle highlights glistening in the candlelight and smelling sweetly of all things possible. Now I'm no longer looking at the back of Marine's head, but into her face, and my heart clenches. She's staring intently into my eyes and I'm staring into hers and I'm lost in the sea of marine. She's gesturing with her hands and tapping the front of her metal mask the same way I saw the other people do. I don't understand her, but that's okay. We're together, together again at last. I don't want to, but I can't help but notice her face is dirty. There are thick lines of crust under her eyes and around her mouth, even down her chin and neck. This must be what happens when you wear the metal ball gag mask long term. Saliva oozes out of your mask and dries into layers of spittle. Not all the crust is yellow or white. Some of it is dark. A dark red unmistakable as anything other than blood. The guards resume ushering the line and Marine turns around again as we approach the stairwell door. She resumes stroking and patting the man in front of her and I instinctively do the same for her and almost immediately feel someone's hand on my own shoulder. The weight of it is calming, grounding. Until this moment I didn't realize I touch. How long has it been? Other than the older man who grabbed me earlier at the bonfire, it's been at least a month, maybe two. A long time since I felt Marine's lips on mine. Outside the hospital we are gathered into a parking lot lit with large blinding spotlights. There are at least a hundred of us in metal mass, and the guards bump and hurt us, spinning us. My head swims from the movement and the weight of metal on my face. I grab Marine's hand tight, tighter, the tightest I can. She squeezes my hand back and we are no longer two people, but one person being molded together, comforting each other, loving each other. Our symbiotic connection has been revived. A stage is set up in one corner of the parking lot and three guards stand equal distance apart on it, waiting. On one end of the stage, stairs lead up to the platform and on the other end is a giant dumpster used to haul away large trash from construction sites. For some reason, the sight of this dumpster fills me with fear more than anything else I've seen since I woke up in the hospital this morning. The crowd of metal masks moves again, like one big blob, still patting the closest person to us, still padded by someone else. As we move closer to the side of the stage, I realize there is another large crowd, this one of people in black gas masks, an audience. I can feel their anxious and excited energy, like at the bonfire. There must be 200 of them gathered. The guards will lead us up to the stage and we will be executed and our bodies will be thrown into the dumpster and the gas mask crowd will cheer. This must be what Lennon meant by being cleansed. What does this have to do with aliens? What does this have to do with the send packets? I see no aliens. I only see humans torturing other humans with metal ball gags and cages and now sending them to their deaths while other humans watch. What is happening? Bang, thud, bang, thud, bang, thud. Marine and I freeze. On the stage, the bodies of three of the metal masks, lifeless, are dragged to the dumpster and thrown in. Three more led to the stage. One woman resists. Tears pour out of her eyes. She digs her feet into the stairs, refusing to move. The guards beat her in the back and drag her to her mark. Just then, her metal mask and ball gag pop open and fall to the stage floor with a clang. She coughs out a mouthful of blood, freeing her voice. Please, please, she chokes. Help me do something. Someone in the audience shouts, cover your ears, cover your ears. The crowd in the audience covers its ears, drowning out the woman. She turns to the guard. Please, please, I can say my ABCs. A, B, C, D, E, O. Oh. The guard knocks her down again. Shut up, he yells. It's too late for that. We're on to your sneaky alien ways. We know your tricks. I'm not an alien. I am a human. Please! Another person dressed like a park ranger walks out onto the stage. I can't tell if it's the same one from earlier. They walk up to the woman and grab her face. We know you have smelled the scent of the aliens. Please! No! Please! Resume the cleansing! Screams the park ranger, and the guards line up the woman for execution. She faces the crowd of gas-masked people with their hands over their ears. I watch as her shoulders fall back and her chin rises up and she glares at everyone with the intensity of a prophet. Then when she speaks, her voice is clear and pervasive. We will destroy ourselves. We will bang, thud, bang, thud, bang, thud. The bodies once again go into the dumpster. Intellectually, I know this is a harrowing sight to watch, and I understand I will be traumatized by what I'm seeing. But in the moment, my brain can only make a list of the facts happening. Three people stand up on the stage. Three guns fire, three bodies fall, three thunks hit the dumpster. Then Marine and I shuffle closer to our turn on the stage. Three stand, three shoot, three thud, three thunk. I turn my heavy head to the watching crowd. Some of the people in the audience, I notice now, aren't wearing their masks properly. Instead of fitting the rubber fully around their chin, they've cocked it to the side so they can breathe the night air directly into their mouths. I scan the crowd again. I spot people who have actually slid the entire gas mass onto their heads so the filtered knobs stick up like menacing ears. People rub their chins where the thick rubber masks have dug into their flesh. I see more and more people have pulled the, ma- the gas mask off, and they hang useless around their necks. This isn't like at the bonfire, where everyone was afraid of being infected by the smoke of the burning scents. I absently finger the scent packets and vials in my pocket. Bang, thud, bang, thud. Bang! Thud. I squeeze Maureen's hand to get her attention and she turns to stare at me. I mumble to her, not sure if she can hear me. I have a plan. Go with it. She stares back at me, unafraid. Do it, her eyes say. I release her hand to slip several of the scent packets in from my pocket into hers and both of us armed, break line from the condemned metal mask wears and charge toward the audience. Bang, thud, bang, thud, bang, thud. When I read Lennon's research about scent dispensers, I learned that the scents are made to be airborne. The goal is to infiltrate your nasal cavities and to keep the scent smelling strong for 14 to 21 days. I use this to our advantage. The crowd doesn't know what's happening at first. Marine squirts one woman right in her mouth and she gasps but stands silent for at least three seconds before she screams. I take a deep breath, then I rip open the scent packet in my hand and scatter them over at least 10 people Three of them with masks on top of their heads, their faces exposed. The chaos comes in waves, but it comes in full force. Bang, thud, bang, thud, bang, thud. The crowd erupts in horror and charges away from us, becoming a blob of gas masks in the same way we had been a blob of metal masks. Only they are blobbing away from the stage now. Marine and I charge through the crowd, now trying to avoid the war. War between whom and over what, I'm still not sure, but chaos is winning. Even the other metal maskers are fighting now. The roar of fear is deafening, like a freight train, like a rocket, like the sound of the atmosphere shattering. At first I think I'm drowning out of the execution. At first I think I'm drowning out the executions of the stage, but then I realize they've stopped altogether. I grab hold of Marine's hand, pulling her away, and don't look back. Several blocks away behind a dumpster, I sit Marine down and gasp for air hoping I didn't inhale any of the scent myself. We can still hear the din of the carnage at the hospital. We're not entirely safe, but I need to get these masks off of us before we go any further. Marine is as docile as a child, staring at me wide eyed. I fiddle with her mask. The latch is rusted from the constant moisture of her spit and blood. I can't get it loose. Marine reaches into her pocket and pulls out a half empty vial of scented oil. Keeps it as a lubricant, she says to me with her eyes. I take the vial, but hesitate. There's no way to use the oil without smelling it. What will happen to me? What if Marine really is an alien and this was her plan all along to get me to join her? Would that be so bad? Being an alien doesn't seem so awful. It's the lunatic humans who are killing everyone. What have the aliens done to humans to warrant all this torture and murder? How can this be justified? Marine pleased with me more with her eyes. And I swoon as though this has not been the absolute most horrifying day of my life. Maureen, beautiful, beautiful Maureen. I empty the oil onto my fingers and work it in the latch of her metal mask. The scent, a mixture of sweet floral and synthetic sandalwood, bites at my nose like wasp stings. I feel flushed and feverish, and I feel my eyes dilating. For a second, I'm worried I'll have another allergic reaction, but then the latch lets go and the metal ball falls out of Marine's mouth in a puddle of blood and spit and, I think, a tooth. She coughs and coughs. While I wait for her to recover, to embrace me, I can't help but jerk and twitch, just like Lennon did. Gary, she says, her voice like silk. It takes me a moment to realize there are tears rolling down my cheeks, and I struggle with my own mask, rubbing more of the oil to release the latch. Marine helps me, and then it is my turn, to vomit red slime full of bits of skin from the inside of my cheeks. I take Maureen's hand. I found her. She's here and I'm here, and even though the world we knew is annihilated, we still have each other. Gary, she says again. I wait for the sentiments. Will she shower me with declarations in the same way Lennon did? Will I do the same for her? I feel warm and twitchy, but I don't feel like I'm changing, at least not on a biological level necessary to become an alien. My mouth and neck ache from the ball gag, and my nose burns from the scented oil. But mostly I ache for Marine to say all the things we knew and felt but never expressed. Gary, she says again, and this time I notice a little tang in her voice. Yes, I ask. You make me sick, Gary, Marine says. What? Looking at you makes me sick to my stomach. Look at my face. She frowns and squints her eyes. I can't stop making this face. I don't, I start. It's as though her tongue is a whip that slashes my soul with every word. You were so easy to manipulate, she says, so easy to persuade. It was boring how easy it was, which made me hate you even more. I am hot and devastated and confused. Then I remember Lennon showering his love for me down the stairwell. The woman on the stage right before she was murdered. We will destroy ourselves. I look down at the vial of scented oil in my hand. The aliens knew how to make us monsters, but it had nothing to do with turning our bodies vulgar and repulsive or turning our teeth to razor-sharp edges. How clever these aliens are. Why start a war with a race when you can just have them destroy themselves? The aliens had done their research on us. They knew the one thing we cannot handle, the one thing we're afraid of the most, the truth. There's a scent dispenser in one in four households. So they pumped it into us using the already established chains of distribution. Clever Clever aliens, indeed. I hate your wine, I hate your tailored suits, I hate your apartment, Maureen goes on. When I cut my eyes back at her, she rolls her jaw around, luxuriating in the freedom from the ball gag. I hate your advertising copy, it is trite and uninspired. She smiles at me. It's the most beautiful smile in all the universe. I hate your left ear, I hate your right ear. This cannot stand. This is unacceptable. Marine and me, me and Marine. This is not the way that narrative plays out. Not after everything we've been through together. I think about refitting her with the metal ball gag mask, but I know she'll still be thinking everything she can't say. I try to conquer comforting images of tennis lessons and French tutors, but I only see myself sitting in my childhood living room watching TV and the room getting darker and darker as the sun sets and no one comes home to turn on the lights, to cook dinner, to send me to bed. I hate you, Gary, Maureen says again. I see myself wrap my hands around Marine's beautiful throat and squeeze. I squeeze the soft insides of her neck until I feel cartilage and tendon crack and blood stop pulsing until she can no longer say her hideous truths. I'm sitting next to Marine's lifeless body. Oh God, oh God, beautiful Marine, beautiful, wonderful, lovely Marine. I am an ugly, ugly man. I dig deep into my brain, searching for the lies, for the rewrite, anything to make this not be what it is. But my head is clear, completely devoid of its ability to see anything but what is real. The weight of reality is heavier than the metal ball gag mask. It pulls me down into the earth with a force much greater than gravity. My heart explodes inside my throat, and a deep guttural scream detonates from my soul. I scratch at Marine's body, pulling it into my lap and holding it tight, with my nose still burning from the scented oil, true serum, and Marine's last, I hate you, echoing in my ears. I rock back and forth and say, I hate myself too. The end.
0: Megan, that was wonderful.
1: Oh, thank you, Jeremy.
0: You're so good at writing. Who would have thought?
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Woo. Um,
0: that was
1: a lot of words. It was a
0: lot of words, but a lot of good words. what was the inspiration behind this piece?
1: Mm, that's a very good question. Um, Originally, I wanted – Well, so I personally have a lot of chemical sensitivities Mm -hmm. and have trouble with things like perfumes and fragrances and pesticides, et cetera. And I really wanted to write stories, a series of stories about people who had sensitivities as well and have that sensitivity save them in some kind of way. And so the idea came up. Originally, of this man who um, was experiencing an alien invasion, but he wasn't invaded because he has an allergic reaction to the to the scent. So that was sort of the the original impetus of the story. And then I also really liked the idea of writing a story about an alien invasion that was very quiet and that wasn't like Independence Day was like big spaceships, you know, coming into the atmosphere and everybody freaking out and these cool, sophisticated aliens. Um, And then once I got into Gary's head, I, I just really liked his voice and I liked his obsession with Marine and I just kind of ran with it.
0: Yeah. Gary's an interesting character. It's fat. He's a very, he's very specific. Um, uh, Do you want to talk more about how it was like (laughs) putting yourself in uh, his shoes?
1: Uh, yeah, it was it's interesting because at first I, at first I thought Gary was a good guy. You know, when I first started writing this, I thought, oh, he's just this kind of quirky dude who just wants this girl. And it's just going to be the story of a guy who wants to get his girl. But then the more I got into it, the more I realized, oh no, this guy's a little too intense and, um, started thinking more about. His actions, and and um, it, it, then I started realizing that he is this unreliable narrator, and you don't know if he's good or bad, and and you really don't know what kind of person whose head you're in as you're as you're reading or listening to the story.
0: Well, that was one of my favorite uh, things about the story was Gary and him being an unreliable narrator. I also love your theme of truth and lies. You know, like, he's telling himself all of these things about how he was raised, but they're not true. And ultimately, mm-hmm. it's not the aliens that destroy us, it's the the truth. That's so cool.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: question, I don't know if okay. you can't say this, or you don't know, but, <laughs> like, listening to it this time, I was like, maybe the aliens aren't trying to destroy us. Do you know the backstory of the aliens? Like, do you know what's happening that we don't know in this piece? And if you if you can't say, uh, why can't you say?
1: Uh, the back Well, originally I thought that the aliens wanted to take over planet Earth so they, they wanted it as their own. But then I was like, oh man, we've treated planet Earth so poorly. I don't know if aliens <laughs> even want planet Earth right now. Um, but then I thought, well. <laughs> You know, if they got rid of the humans, planet Earth would probably be doing a lot better. So maybe these aliens would treat her better. Um, But I kind of landed on the idea that the aliens are just manipulating us and that this is like a big kind of like a social experiment for them to come to our planet and have us face our fears and see what happens. You know, an experiment for the human race and see what we're made of and see who would survive. And when they find out that we are the thing that we're afraid of the most is truth, um, you know that's that's the thing that they want to inundate us with. Huh.
0: I wonder. I wonder if something else will be happening with this piece. If there will be a continuation or something, because that's a I, I interesting pitch for a show or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, I like these aliens, even though they they don't really play much of a role in in the story. I did. I did like. In my head, I like them. Yeah, I like the idea
0: <laughs> of it's not that they want to take over; it's just like a social experiment. That's kind of creepy in its own right.
1: Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I wonder if they're like the aliens aren't as adverse to truth as we are. Mm. You know, like we don't we don't like to hear truth on the, externally, <laughs> and we don't like to hear the truth about ourselves and. Speaking from personal experience, like we do sort of tell ourselves these lies and rewrite things so that we don't, so we can just get through the day, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to tell, you just have to do what you you have to do to get through the day. And um, I wonder what the aliens like really think about those defense mechanisms that that humans have
0: okay so i'm definitely getting a feeling that this is going to continue in some way <laughs>
1: well now that you have me talking about it and i'm like man you're right i do like these aliens these aliens are really interesting i mean gary you know poor marine she's gone and i don't know what happens to gary so
0: oh that the ending i think you suck like this whole time <laughs> he's going for it. And then Maureen, uh, with her honesty, she gets herself killed. Well, I guess they, they both had a part in that.
1: Yeah. Well, but it's not her fault. It's not
0: her (laughs) fault. It's not her fault.
1: Yeah. But I, I, I also, um, wanted to explore the idea of, as you mentioned, this idea of the, the lies that we tell ourselves and truth and lies and Um, I think particular when it comes to being in love or being infatuated Mm -hmm. with someone, there's all kinds of lies that, that we tell ourselves and we make up relationships in our head that might not actually be the actual relationship we're in all the time.
0: That's never happened to me ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah. this is just the story of how that can get out of control
0: that's wonderful what was the most difficult thing to write about like what was a challenge in this piece for you
1: oh um, the ending was really difficult for me it really it really bummed me out I I didn't want Gary to kill marine I wanted him to have a change of heart or not a change of heart but just kind of realized that he needed to evolve and if he wanted to be with Marine, that he would have to accept that she doesn't like him and but that's just that wasn't being true to his character and true to, to wh- where he was when he When he found out that she truly does hate him and everything that however she's been manipulating him so it was it was one of those writer moments where you your writer brain wants to do one thing and your character is like uh and the story is like uh no this is the thing that's best served the story and you just have to you have to serve the story
0: yeah i've had those moments too um where you 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 write something and people are like why can't it be a happy ending (laughs) you're like it just can we talk just, about this like i'm curious from your perspective yeah. like how do you decide what the ending is i'm just curious cuz we've never spoken about that
1: oh um i don't i don't feel like i just i feel it you feel it i feel the ending um you know in in the blood i knew that i wanted that ending i wanted i i felt the only you know I, felt it as soon as I wrote it, mm. that that was the ending. And um, I, as you know, I've been working on the plugin for quite some time now. And I struggled with the ending for a long time. And I had several different endings. But when I wrote this ending as painful and like gut-wrenching as it was, I just knew it was the right ending. And I, I just felt it. I was like, this, this ending makes me look back beginning of the story and see that this is the only way that this story can end up from everything that I built from the very beginning. This is the way it has to end.
0: For me too, that's the similar thing that happens to me. It's like a bell rings in my head and I, I know it's a feeling. It's just, you, you know when something's right. Even if you don't like it, like you know it's the, because like a lot of times I don't like the ending from a human humanitarian thing, you know, like the, the sad endings where somebody Strangle somebody else, <laughs> but yeah, uh, great interview, Megan. High five on your story. High five on the oh, reading. High, High five. five on the yeah. season finale.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm just so excited! I can't believe that we made it through the first season. This is like such a wonderful accomplishment. Um, and we want to thank everybody who has been uh, loyally tuning in every week. And if you're a new listener, thank you for for tuning in to the season finale and uh, we want to thank everybody who's been supporting us. We also want to give a super special shout out to our uh, third partner, Mark, who is the, the man that makes all of this happen with our sound and makes sure that Jeremy and I sound good and look good. And honestly, if it weren't for Mark, Jeremy and I would still be like, we wouldn't be here right now because we'd still be like reading through podcasting for dummies like idiots
0: you want to know something hilarious guys we are talking about him right now and he has no <laughs> idea he's behind the screen <laughs> and he's just doing like this like he had no idea that um, Megan was shouting him out and everything but it's so true
1: that's hilarious listen
0: we had we had how to podcast books and Megan and I we 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 were so desperately looking through it i think we almost started praying like there is no way there is no, this this show would not be here if it wasn't for Mark. He's not gonna yes. get in front of here. Um so so let's describe him. He has he's he's got really nice eyes, he's got a man bun.
1: He's got great arms.
0: Oh my god, his arms are huge.
1: <laughs> and he's just a lovely, lovely human he's being. He's a
0: great person. So oh. thank you, Mark.
1: Thank you, Mark. I I think of us, sometimes I think of us as like this three-headed Hydra, and Mark is like the biggest one who's kind of like, you know, puppeting us. That's funny. But we're nice, we're nice Hydra. Yeah,
0: it's a a good triangle. Like, it's funny because sometimes (laughs) I'll be like, that's not how this is going to go. And then Mark and Megan are like, well, that's actually, we agree (laughs) that you're wrong. And I'm like, ah. (laughs) So it's good that we balance each other out. There's always somebody that's like, no, this is actually the right way. It's it's a good balance. Um,
1: We work very well together. And also Mark designed our opening music. And I also want to give a quick shout out to my dad who wrote our outro song. Nobody Reads Short Stories, the song. So thank you, Daddy. And Jeremy, you want to tell everybody what's coming up?
0: uh, The second season? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're going to have a second season. If all goes well, we're going to have technology updates, hopefully to make the sound better. Cause I know sometimes like, like something is a cliffhanger and then like it gets all garbled. So hopefully we'll fix all that. Um, listeners, if you have somebody that you know, that's a good writer and I'm saying good writer, don't give us Auntie May sending us a story that we, we don't understand, but we are really looking for diverse stories. Uh, send it to our website. We would love to be able to have somebody who's been listening to the show actually do their story on the show. We're also, and this isn't for sure, um, but we might have authors actually doing their own reads, which is kind of exciting. Uh,
1: yes, hopefully, we hoping between season one and season two we'll be able to do a technology upgrade and we'll be able to have another stream on the podcast that we can bring of the writers in and have them be able to read their own work instead of you guys having to listen to Jeremy and I every week.
0: Although, Megan, last week was really good with those English voices. Last,
1: You know, <laughs> I don't think we've been given enough props for those awesome English accents that we did last week. They were pretty awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, like that was one of the the pluses was your English accents last week from the people that have watched it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also we we are going on hiatus is that right is that right the right way to say hiatus oh i'm i'm such yeah. a dumb writer i don't know how to use words so we're going on hiatus but we are still going to be doing cranky talks so you can still tune in same time every week and get cranky going off um us talking about the authors and like freaking megan out and then mark wants us to let you know like he's pointing at me right now i'm in big trouble if i don't mention this Um, That we are going to be having, uh, we're going to be eventually selling, like, gear, like, for the show.
1: Nobody reads stories merchandise. Yeah. To help offset some of the costs of of the technology uploads. And then uh, we also have a couple of groups that we want to, uh, literacy groups and uh, groups that support, uh, you know, getting literature into the hands of kids. And so we want to be able to make a donation to them as well
0: yeah, so we'll keep you all updated. Part of our cranky talk will probably be talking about that, like what's happening with the show. Books we're reading.
1: Absolutely. So during the hiatus, you can still you can still come and uh, join us every Monday night at six or nine on the East Coast and hear us talk about whatever books we're reading. Um, and we will give you updates on uh, everything that we're working on leading up to season two and let you know how everything is evolving and uh, once again we just want to say thank you guys so much for all of your support and thank you for being story lovers
0: thank you guys see you next week on cranky no one
1: reads our stories short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories, funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads
0: short stories.